Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Because your ass, listener, belongs to us. I'm Nick and I'm the host of the Tennis Podcast. I'm Brandon, I'm the sidekick host. I thought that was just a really shitty rendition of Enter Sandman. (laughs) Enter Sandman made it famous, of course. But it's a little related to today's episode because this is the first episode of Spooktober 2021. Spooktober, every year we usually do some uh, spookier renditions of the show. This is the show where one of us brings a top 10-ish list, the other doesn't know what it is. They try to guess items 1 through 10 in real time along with you, the folks at home. Today we're going to do something that has to do with prayers and demons and spirits and ghosts. But before I get to that, I got a little story to get us in the spooktober spirit. Okay. This is actually not related to today's topic, but it's a nice little anecdote that a listener shared with me. I wanted to share it. I was on Instagram recently, and I don't even remember how it came up, but one of our listeners let me know that they had a real-life run-in with Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Really? Yeah. And this is uh, not too terribly long after his reign of terror. So I said, hey, listener, if you send me that story, I will read it on the air, and I'm going to do it now. Yeah, let me hear this. Here it is. This is from Lori. She's a listener of the show. Uh, So I'm just going to start reading as if I'm her. In 1994, I got hired for my first real job out of grad school as an audiologist. Hearing tests, hearing aids, that sort of thing. We frequently did the hearing portion of the physicals for the law enforcement officers, and at times we'd test the inmates from various jails and prisons. Apparently, my supervisor was a bit of an asshole. He told me a patient was up and handed me the chart. Richard Ramirez, inmate from blank facility, claimed he was injured in jail by a guard and now he can't hear from one ear. I thought nothing of this because there's a lot of Richard Ramirez is in Southern California. When I walked in the exam room, there was no mistaking who this guy was. He still had the total crazy eyes. Thing was, back in the day when Richard Ramirez was being his horrible sadistic self, I was 16 and living in East LA and I was completely freaked out. And by the way, for the few listening who might not know who we're talking about, this is the serial killer in the 80s that, known as the Night Stalker, he killed, I don't know, two dozen or pretty close to that people throughout Southern California. Yeah. So back to the story. Back to the exam. He was in the sound booth with a police officer standing on either side of him. I was literally shaking. My supervisor sat there watching the whole encounter. I took a brief history and then grabbed my otoscope, the look in the ear thing, and reluctantly stepped closer to him. One of the officers stepped between me and him and said, ma'am, don't approach the prisoner. But I need to look in his ears, I said. The officer squeezed between him and the window in the sound booth, standing about an inch in front of him and said, don't even think of making a move. Not one move. Now he's really scared. My hands were shaking, but he did not make one move. I just got the sense the officer wouldn't have minded if he had made the move, just to have an excuse. His hearing was normal. Maybe he just wanted a day out of the facility. He spent 24 years on death row before his death from cancer in prison. Would have been a lot of time to check his hearing. Yeah. Well, you get bored. So you make up a reason to get out for the day. A hearing exam becomes like the highlight of your year. Uh, Sounds like every senior citizen I've ever heard of. You know, pretty soon we'll be hearing stories like this about you getting your ears checked. Hilarious. Okay, well, hopefully that got you in a spooktober mood. If any listeners out there have any similar encounters, we'd love to hear them and we'll read them throughout this month. Send them to tennispod at gmail.com now. Let's get to the topic. Brandon, today we're talking about, I don't know how to name this episode, but 
uh, hauntings, possessions, and paranormal phenomena. Mm-hmm. Ed and Lorraine Warren's most infamous cases. Oh, shit. They have 10 of them? Yes. Well, they have thousands, in fact. But doing the top 10. I wanted to do a list about ghosts and hauntings, but I, you know, how do you sort that into a top 10? So I looked around, and the best I could come up with was a Ranker.com article from Patrick Thornton, who wrote about the most infamous cases that the Warrens worked on, and then the voters, about 2,000 voters, voted on their favorites. So I guess you could say these are the top 10 most famous, most infamous haunting cases of the modern era. For those that don't know, Ed and Lorraine Warren are the basis of the two main characters in the Conjuring universe. They were real people who really investigated paranormal cases. These are the top 10. I'm going to have a really hard time guessing these. I'm not like passingly familiar with their stuff. I will say there's one I will guess because I saw the movie when it came out. It had, uh, what's her name? Vera, I can't pronounce her last name. And uh, Yeah, she's Lorraine Warren and he's Ed Warren. And there's a few movies with them playing Ed and Lorraine Warren, but I saw the Haunting in Connecticut movie. And the reason that I wanted to see the movie specifically was because when I was probably 12 or 13, my favorite place to go at the public library in the summer was the adult nonfiction section, where the books on the paranormal and hauntings and true crime and UFOs and abductions and conspiracies, all that stuff was in this same section of the adult nonfiction. I got a book one time. I, I don't know if it was called A Haunting in Connecticut, but I got it, well, one, based on the creepy cover and the name, you know, the title, that it was yeah. a haunting, story of a haunting, a true haunting of this family. They had to move closer to a cancer treatment facility for one of their sons. Right. It had previously been a funeral home or funeral parlor. I don't know what the correct name is. And They noticed when they came to look at it, according to the story, that every door leading down to the basement had a crucifix hanging over it, and they were told not to remove those. And that in the basement is where the bodies were prepared. And that room in the basement is where they put their teenage son, who was being treated for uh, cancer, his room was down in the extremely haunted basement of this house. And the book scared the ever-loving shit out of me. The movie doesn't at all do this book justice. Anyway, that was my first introduction to them. This family, their life gets turned upside down and they reach out for help, somehow get hooked up with Ed and Lorraine Warren who come and like, for lack of a better word, do battle with <laughs> it's true with the house and the spirits. And I don't know, I, I, I cannot remember what came of it. I think the family ended up moving, but there was some crazy shit in that story. So that's, that's one of my guesses. I'm going to guess uh, Haunting in Connecticut. You're right. So I have some more setup about the Warrens and stuff, but I'll get to that after the Haunting in Connecticut since we're already talking about it. So if you're listening and you're not super familiar with the Warrens, I'll fill you in here in a minute. But let's get to Brandon's first guess, The Haunting in Connecticut. There's a book, I think it's that same title, but the movie in 2009, pretty well-known horror movie, The Haunting in Connecticut, is based on this. It's number four in the top ten. So Brandon hit a lot of the main points, but let me give you uh, some others. So the case involved the Snedeker family, which began in 1986 when Carmen and Al Snedeker rented a home in Southington, Connecticut. Here's the name of that book. And just even reading the title of the book kind of brought back spooky memories. In a Dark Place, The Story of a True Haunting. 
Who's the author on that? Fellow goes by the name Ray Garten. Okay. Anyway, the house seemed perfect for the family until move-in day when they discovered it had been a funeral home and the basement bedroom reserved for their two sons had been part of the mortuary, like you said. Mm. The family began hearing voices and the children saw apparitions throughout the house. The family even reported being physically attacked by demonic forces. Without the option to move due to financial constraints, that's when the family contacted, I guess, would you say the most famous or well-known paranormal researches of modern times, the Warrens? Yeah, in the absence of, a, of an actual team of Ghostbusters in the world, yep. uh, this is probably about the best you're going to get. And by the way, I should have mentioned this earlier, but... For all of these, I'm uh, not focusing on the movie, movies at all. A lot of people are familiar with Conjuring movies. Mm -hmm. I'll mention them here and there, but I'm focusing on the true or quote-unquote true stories. So the Warrens, they spent many nights at the Snedeker home and confirmed the hauntings. Lorraine vividly remembered the first time she entered the house stating, quote, As soon as I walked into the first room, it was just an overwhelming bad feeling. I had a feeling of fear which could also apply to Brandon's family when they walk into the bathroom after Brandon. <laughs> Just an overwhelming bad feeling. <laughs> so. Not. Okay. I do not sanction these <laughs> jokes. The Catholic Church performed an exorcism on the house. Which, you know, you might not notice or realize you don't perform exorcisms just on people, but on things, places. There's more of that later, too. And since that exorcism, no other families have reported paranormal activity. So, about the validity of these claims, Lorraine Warren, she said that two scientists had stayed with her and Ed during a nighttime investigation because they were skeptics, mm -hmm. but they got so scared on their first night, they fled the home in the middle of the night. However, on the other side of the coin, researcher Joe Nickel has dismissed the story as a hoax. Nickel noted that since Ed Warren died in 2006... Some of his co-authors have since admitted that he told them to make up incidents and details to create scarier stories. I totally believe that based on the book that I read because it was filled with, I mean, it gave me nightmares. I still remember it, you know, all the, like almost 30 years later, some yeah. of the images and stuff they put in my head that do not match up with the movie and... The movie was PG-13, so that might be one reason why it wasn't yeah, quite Yeah, well, as... yeah, the stuff that I'm thinking of is like... It would definitely earn the movie like an, a hard R or X rating. Yeah. The last note I said there was about Ed Warren being accused of embellishing. Mm -hmm. That's a note for pretty much all of these. He had a reputation for that, which, you know, in the field of paranormal research is a critical point because the second you start embellishing any story on any case, it affects your credibility across the board. But let me tell you, let's back up now. So that was the Hounding in Connecticut, number four. Let me give a little more background on the Warrens. So this comes from that Ranker.com article. If you look into the most notorious cases of hauntings, possessions, and paranormal phenomena in the last 50 years, you'll probably find out they were investigated by Ed and Lorraine Warren. Ed was a World War II Navy veteran and police officer. He believed in the supernatural from an early age, having grown up in a reportedly haunted house. Of course he did. Lorraine, who grew up just blocks from Ed, demonstrated psychic abilities in early childhood, being able to see auras around the nuns at her Catholic school. And that's incorporated <laughs> those were in the Conjuring habits. movies. Those were those little hats that they're wearing. Those weren't auras. Oh, that's, that's cute. I get it. The little hats that they're wearing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Ed and Lorraine began dating when they were both 16. They got married at 18. Ed eventually began studying demonology and founded the New England Society for Psychic Research in 1952, 
They've since claimed to have investigated over 10,000 cases. And after Ed passed in 2006, Lorraine actually served as a consultant for the Conjuring movie franchise, which includes a bunch of movies, not just with the name The Conjuring, uh, but I'm not going to spoil because if I gave you the titles, it would spoil some of these. But those are based on the cases she and Ed investigated together. She's 92. She's close to becoming a spooky ghost herself. She's dead. She's dead. Oh, yeah, she's right. She died in like 2019, I think. Yeah. But until then, uh, she consulted on the Conjuring movies. She hasn't consulted on them after since she died? You know, that's a hell of a thought because you think if she knows how to communicate with the dead while she was alive, you'd think she knows how to communicate with the living while she's dead. So, you know, during one of these like writing room meetings, when they're planning out the next Conjuring movie, you think they'd start hearing knocks and wails and moans when she's unhappy with the, the direction of the story. Yeah. Plausible. And I guess we can't rule out that that is happening. We're not in the room. So, you said you're going to have a hard time with this. I don't think you will. I think you've at least heard of most of these. Well, I just remembered another one. I had forgotten. This is probably the one that, like, everybody has heard of. And maybe even when I say the name, you'll see the house, uh, the weird, uh, the very distinct side of the house with the windows that look kind of like eyes would be the Amityville horror. Amityville horror. And I remember, it's weird to think, like there's a whole story that goes along with that and then they show up too. Yeah, well there's, the Amityville horror is broken up in two parts because there's the true crime aspect of it Mm -hmm. and then there's the post-true crime, the haunting part of it. Uh, I'm going to cover both. Amityville horror is, I thought it'd be number one. Remember, these are ranked based on votes on this website. Uh, It's actually number three. Mm Mm-hmm. Amityville Horror, and uh, by far the most extensive notes on here for this because I find it the most interesting. So let's go into the true crime part of it first. It's made famous by the 1977 book The Amityville Horror by Jay Anson, and then the many movies that followed. All of them bad, except maybe the first one. So here's the murders themselves. On November 13th, uh, around 6.30 p.m. on November 13th, 1974, 23-year-old Ronald DeFeo Jr. entered Henry's Bar in Amityville, Long Island, New York, and declared... You gotta help me. I think my mother and father are shot. Well, you didn't do a very, like, the thick Long Island accent. Can you give us your best rendition? I, don't, I can't do a Long Island I can't accent. do voices at all. I can't do it. Cannot do it. I, don't, I can't okay. even attempt it. Okay, so 23-year-old Ronald DeFeo goes into the bar, says, you gotta help me. My mother and father are shot. So he brought a small group of people to their house. This is a suburban neighborhood in Amityville, Long Island, New York. They found that six members of the family were all dead in their beds. This is DeFeo's family. The victims were Ronald Jr.'s parents and his four siblings, Don, age 18, Allison, age 13, Mark, age 12, and John Matthew, age 9. All of the victims had been shot with a 35 caliber lever-action Marlin 336C rifle around 3 o'clock in the morning that day. The victims were all found lying face down in bed. A super loud gun, too, by the way. Yeah, which is part of the whole... The spooky mystery. There's some uh, speculation that the paranormalness of the house actually influenced Ronald to do this. Yeah. So, like, the, pre- the dark presence was actually there before. Also, yeah. all the drugs he was doing. Well, we're going to gloss over that. It ruins otherwise good story. So, Ronald DeFeo Jr., he's also known as Butch. He was the eldest son of the family and its lone surviving member. He was taken to the local police station for his own protection after suggesting to police officers at the scene of the crime that the killings had been carried out by a mob hitman. However, an interview at the station soon exposed serious inconsistencies in his version of events. 
It only took a day for him to confess to carrying out the killings himself. So Ronald DeFeo Jr., age 23, killed his two parents and four siblings. He told detectives, Once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. He admitted he had taken a bath and redressed after the killings and detailed where he had discarded evidence. DeFeo himself died just this year, March 2021, at age 69 at the Albany Medical Center. Official cause of death yet to be determined, or demons strangling him. Possibly, yeah. But, you know, you brought up the loud gun. He went room by room to kill six different people in the same house in the middle of the night, and none of them woke up? Nope, there's no signs of struggle. Yep. Okay, so that's the true crime aspect. So why are we talking about it today? Well, it's because the house is most famous for all the hauntings that went on there. Starting a year later. A year later, in December 1975, George and Kathy Lutz and their three kids moved into the house. Much of the DeFeo family's furniture was still in the house. <laughs> Can you believe that? It's just that's like, a pretty sweet deal. They did it for 400 bucks. They kept all, uh, almost all the furniture, which, I mean, they knew the history of the house. so. I don't know. I wouldn't do it. So a friend of George Lutz, he learned about the history of the house and insisted on George having it blessed. 28 days later, they did have it blessed by a priest. 28 days later, the Lutzes fled the house claiming to have been terrorized by paranormal phenomena while living there. After the Lutzes' traumatic experience, Ed and Lorraine Warren, our heroes, were called in to investigate the credibility of these demonic forces. With a full camera crew in tow, the Warrens investigated the large Dutch colonial home and said they experienced the evil firsthand. But I don't know if, I mean, probably did, but I don't know if I've ever heard of Ed Warren going into any home that's been claimed to be haunted and been like, nope, not haunted. Nothing here. He will seize on it every time. Yeah. Ed was reportedly pushed in the basement, the site of demonic activity while saying prayers. Lorraine felt ill in the house and sensed the demonic presence. Now, many of our listeners may have seen the famous photo of the boy that was captured on film. If you just search Amityville House Boy, I guess, you'll see a picture of a boy, that, like a boy ghost in the corner of the photo, like looking over a stair banister. Uh, and that's important because there were no children present at the time that photo was taken. This is after Lutz family had left the home. So Ed considers that photo proof of a haunting, oh, and he fuck. believed it to be the spirit of one of the DeFeo children. This picture is not good. <laughs> this is not cool. Brand. That is scary as fuck. His eyes are glowing like a cat. Yeah, I'm looking at one that shows um, the ghost compared to one of the victims, John DeFeo, a little boy. Mm-hmm. Looks kind of like him. I don't know. It's a creepy photo because you got to remember this is 1975. Photoshop wasn't a thing. I don't know. I'm not saying it's real, but I'm saying it, if it's not real, it's pretty well done. Yeah, I don't know how you get a kid's eyes to reflect the light like that, but good job, fucking, it'll stick with me tonight. So there is some evidence that the side of the Amityville house had been on a Native American burial ground. I think this is part of the movie. And a man, also a man who practiced dark arts, lived there on the property and was subsequently buried there. However, some of this is disputed by local Native American leaders. I feel like they might know. Okay, so when asked about the Amityville case decades later, Lorraine said it was absolutely horrible. I don't even like to talk about it. I will never go in that house ever again. So in May 1977, this is less than two years after they moved in, George and Kathy Lutz filed a lawsuit alleging misappropriation of names, invasion of privacy, and mental distress. In 1979, a judge dismissed their claims, 
And also that same year, William Webner, Weber, who was the defense attorney for Ronald DeFeo Jr., he's the one who killed his family, uh, that attorney wrote, I know this book is a hoax, talking about the book about the hauntings that made it famous. I know this book is a hoax. We created this horror story over many bottles of wine. This refers to a meeting that Weber is said to have had with George and Kathy Lutz, during which they discussed what would later become the outline of Jay Anson's book. Mm-hmm. However, George Lutz maintained the events in the book were, quote, mostly true. <laughs> uh. In June 1979, in June 1979, he and Kathy took a polygraph test to see if they were telling the truth. Polygraph tests were performed by two of the top five polygraph experts in America, and the results indicated they were not lying. But, you know, polygraph tests, take them or leave them. So the debate about the accuracy of the Amityville Horror continues. The various owners of the house since the Lutz family left in 1976 have reported no problems. Brandon, mm-hmm. let me get your hot take. What happened here? Oh, like what actually happened? Was the house haunted? Do you think it's possible? Well, I guess we should talk in the big picture. Do you believe in hauntings at all? I don't know. I don't. I think probably most of the haunting and ghost stories out there are probably bullshit or something that was somebody definitely feels like they saw, but maybe it was a trick of the mind or a trick of the ears. However, I will say I'm not a complete skeptic. I have heard enough stories from people who are, I believe, are very credible. Like Ed Warren? I feel like there's probably some scientific explanation for things that kind of satisfies both. There is probably some sort of like energy or something that can manifest as what we would call a haunting, but we probably don't have the science to understand how or why it's happening. Well, you mentioned last podcast on the left and Henry Zabrowski, one of the hosts on that show, he deposits a theory that hauntings and paranormal activity is a personal thing that one person experiences, like one person's psyche is experiences it, so you can't capture it on, right. on camera or audio. Similar to um, UFO phenomenon, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I subscribe to that. I think there's still a lot out there that we don't know, and within that, there's a little bit of wiggle room for some creepy stuff to be true. So then what do you think of Amityville Horror in particular? So specifically Amityville Horror. To me, the more interesting story is that this, that Ronald DeFeo murdered his whole family and nobody woke up. Yeah, I agree. That is super interesting to me. I would love to hear a theory on how he pulled that off. I know he was like, he was on acid and stuff. So it's not like he was. They never determined a motive, by the way. I mean, I don't think he was like declared insane or anything, but. Obviously, he has fucking mental problems or uh, mental health issues. Hot take? I don't think that's a big leap to make, guy who murdered uh, his whole family. But yeah, I think that's the, maybe the creepiest, most interesting thing. My impression of the Lutzes is that they moved into a house. That's the family that moved in after the murders. Right. Is that they moved into a house that was primed for creepy stories and it probably primed them too like being on edge and feeling weird all the time and paranoid but no i believe that they probably came up with the bullshit and you know we're gonna sell a book and that's what the defense attorney for uh, defeo said uh what's his name william weber Mm -hmm. that's what he said he said he sat around a table and made up the story along with the lutzes who knows who knows if that's true Kind of stepping back again, not talking particular about Amityville, but just in general. One point I want to make is something that I think about a lot, which is the people, and this applies to UFO and extraterrestrial experiences too. Same for hauntings and paranormal. The people that say these stories, 
they gain nothing from them. And 99 times out of 100, their life is worse off for it. Yeah. It's not like they become rich and famous. So, like, do some people make it up thinking they're going to become rich and famous? Yeah, I'm sure that happens sometimes. But I think most people, even if it's not true, they believe it's true. Because, yeah, there's nothing in it for them. What, what are you going to get? You're not going to go on the talk show fucking circuit with... No. I guess you might. But. Maybe, you know, in the late 70s, I think there was... In the late 70s, there was definitely good market and an open space to come in and sell a new American haunting story. Especially this is only, you know, a few years after The Exorcist, which... Yeah. Like, sort of reignited a lot of Christians' fears and concern with the actual entity of the devil and demons and hauntings and stuff. So there's probably like, they just hit the right place at the right time, the right opportunity to make a little bit of money off of this. And I, that's what I think they probably did. I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that when they moved in, they probably thought they heard things or thought they saw things and then just decided like to run with it. Yeah. Let's spin this into gold. What gets to me though, is they had three young kids living there with them. So, I don't know. Seems shitty to do this with them in the middle of it. But. Yeah. They could uh, just be a shitty old people. Yeah. I wonder what they're doing now. I have no idea. Kathleen Lutz died in 2004 of emphysema, and George Lutz died in 2006 of heart disease. They had divorced in the late 80s, but remained on good terms. So, when are you going to stop trying to protect our listeners and tell the truth that they died from demon stranglings? According to Wiki, they, were did mad. Not. they just died from emphysema strangling. I'll have to check our sources on that. Hello, Twisted Humans. Do you find yourself wanting to know more about the latest murder, conspiracy, cult, or haunting? Then this is the podcast for you. We're bringing the most intense stories that will keep you up at night. Join us every Tuesday for a glass of wine and a dose of true crime. I'm Alicia. And I'm Sierra. And this is Twisted Twisted and Uncorked. Uncorked. listeners it's brandon here and i have a question for you do you love receiving electronic mail in your inbox i want to let you know that the tennis podcast monthly email newsletter is here for you email is short for electronic mail it's a free newsletter delivered directly to your inbox electronically on the first friday of every month each e-newsletter comes with my very special cute little blog the sidekick corner in fact The newsletter is the only place to read my blog. Plus, e-newsletter subscribers will be the first to see our future episode topics, which means the episode that I'm rudely interrupting right now, our e-newsletter subscribers electronically knew the list topic weeks in advance. The e-newsletter comes with other stuff too, like behind the scenes updates, merch discounts, and more. The best part, you can sign up right now in literally 10 seconds, electronically. All we need is an email electronic mail address. Go to tennishpod.com slash newsletter to sign up and begin receiving the Tennish Podcast electronic mail newsletter. That's tennishpod.com slash newsletter. See you in your inbox. All right, give me another guess. So Amityville Horror was three. Haunting in Connecticut was four. Well, you got that creepy doll, Annabelle. Annabelle is... Probably the most famous part of the Conjuring universe. And because of the Conjuring movies, I think that is what propelled Annabelle to number one. Oh, wow. On this voted list. 
Annabelle is an allegedly haunted Raggedy Ann doll. And by the way, Raggedy Ann, you don't need that doll to be haunted to be scary. Look at that fucking thing. Yeah, her big black blank eyes and creepy smile. Like, I feel like that doll was invented with the sole purpose of killing you. Anyway, that Raggedy Ann doll is haunted. And it's housed in the now-closed Museum of the Occult by Ed and Lorraine Warren, center antagonist in the Conjuring universe. According to Warrens, a student nurse was given the doll in 1970. They said that the doll behaved strangely, and that a psychic medium told the student that the doll was inhabited by the spirit of a deceased girl named Annabelle. The student and her roommate tried to accept and nurture the spirit-possessed doll, but the doll reportedly exhibited malicious and frightening behavior. They tried to accept and nurture the spirit-possessed doll, kind of like you accepting and nurturing your inflatable family. Keep going. Don't sanction it. Insert laughter. The Warrens confirmed a demon was manipulating Annabelle and that the demon would have taken a human as its host within two to three weeks based on the stages of demonic possession. An exorcism was performed on the doll, and the Warrens proceeded to take it back to their home in Connecticut. Once in the Warrens' care, Annabelle began moving about their house, even after being put in a locked room. The Warrens eventually had a special case made for Annabelle that featured three crosses and holy water in the wood stain. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at that right now. There's a comparison between the movie version of Annabelle that looks absolutely terrifying. It looks way scarier. It looks like it yeah. was made to be haunted. And then a picture of the actual Annabelle, the Raggedy Ann doll, that looks just like a, you know, kind of plain, not scary Raggedy Ann doll, but the box that she's in is terrible. It makes all the difference. Yeah, it has a tarot card with the devil uh, pinned to it, too. <laughs> well, and you can kind of tell, like, Ed and Lorraine Warren, like, play into that shit. Like, yeah. They had a museum that, was, that she was in. The museum's now closed, which is a huge bummer. I would have loved to go to that. All right, well, anyway, about that museum, during a tour of the museum, Lorraine pointed to Annabelle and said, this is the worst thing in here, and she refused to look directly at the doll. Annabelle is sometimes said to move in her case. One man reportedly perished in a motorcycle accident shortly after visiting the Warrens Museum and mocking Annabelle. (laughs) Can't do that. But science writer Sharon A. Hill said, quote, like real life Ed Warren, Real-life Annabelle is actually far less impressive. Of the supernatural claims made about Annabelle by Ed Warren, Hill said, we have nothing but Ed's word for this, and also for the history and origins of the objects in the museum. In other words, there's no source for any of this shit except for Ed. Right. Which, like, the box that she's in is the creepiest part. I mean, you could take, open the box and switch out the doll with, like, a He-Man action figure, and it would still be terrifying. Like, don't open that. Don't let He-Man out. Yeah, and I'm looking at the picture you sent me of the doll, which, by the way, could they get a smaller case for this fucking doll? The doll is fucking crammed in there, can't be comfortable. Of course she's pissed off and moving about the house. Uh, she secondly, looks like she's sitting on a, in, in an outhouse. Yeah, she does. And her head's all scrunched down. because I'll share this photo um, in the show notes, by the way, a link to this. But uh, her head is all crouched down, like, gotta have severe neck pain in there. I don't know, I'd fucking haunt the shit out of the people keeping me in this case too but there's also a sign under it that says warning positively do not do not what do not it just says do not but you're right i would like a he-man action figure to be in there i think that'd be i don't know i'd like to see that now photoshop whatever you put in there it makes it spooky yeah 
It's uh, like uh, the Indian in the cupboard. Only, yeah, only whatever you put in there is going to fucking haunt your nightmares. Oh, God. Indian in the cupboard. Talk about a movie I haven't thought about in 25 years. Well, don't think about it too much. We have to keep doing this. Yeah. Got to get through this list. So, give me another guess. I know that there is one more and I don't know the name of it, but I know that there was a haunting or something in England because I remember hearing about it. I think last podcast even did an episode on this. Yes. And I was surprised when they showed up, particularly because it was overseas. I don't know the name of it though, but is there one that takes place in England? Yeah. So, I think the most famous England-based haunting is the Enfield Poltergeist. That's it. Yeah. The subject of the film, The Conjuring 2. So, if you've seen The Conjuring 2, that movie's all about this. Oh, see, I haven't seen the... I think I've, I've seen one movie where they play Ed and Lorraine Warren, and I can't remember which one it was. Maybe it was... Were they in The Haunting in Connecticut movie? N- not those actors, at least. Okay. No. Well, I saw one movie where... With them in it, but I don't remember what it was. And it wasn't... Well, it would have been wasn't... Conjuring 1, 2, or 3. Okay. They, they, those are the only ones they've been... It must have been the first Conjuring I movie. think so. Yeah, they might have been in Annabelle, but... So, the case that the first Conjuring is about is also on this list, but we haven't talked about it yet. In fact, Conjuring 1, 2, 3, the plot of all three of those, all three of those are on the list. So, let's talk about the Conjuring 2, which is the Enfield Poltergeist. It's number seven in the top ten. Mm-hmm. So, from the years 1977 to 79, man, the 70s were busy for the old Warrens, huh? Every one of these has taken place in the 70s. That was the hottest time for spooky shit. Yeah. I mean, that was probably also when they were... Like, their kids were out of the house and they could... They were horniest. <laughs> yeah, they were probably just traveling around and fighting ghosts and fucking, fucking in people's, like, <laughs> creepy haunted houses. Yeah, they'd say, we need to come stay at the house to observe this ghost, but really they were just wanting to fuck in a haunted house. Yeah. And if you look at pictures of Ed Warren, looks like he might be DTF. Okay, so from 77 to 79, the Enfield Poltergeist was an active case in England that captured massive media attention. The Hodgson family, who rented their home in Enfield, reported large pieces of furniture moving on their own. The mother, Peggy, even called the police, and one officer reported seeing a small table slide across the floor. So you have a police officer saying Mm -hmm. that. In fact, more than 30 visitors to the home reported poltergeist activity, which included moving furniture, wrappings, and voices. I don't know. I was just going to say, we were talking about like what we believe may or may not be true. I do think there is something to poltergeist activity, because it seems to always happen around kids that are around like age 13, 14, particularly girls who are, you know, their hormones are going crazy. So they're going through like, you know, physical and like chemical hormonal changes. There's some sort of energy around that. But I'm also like, also totally aware that a 13 or 14 year old girl would love nothing more than to make everyone, than to like have something over every adult in her life, (laughs) make it like, Thinking that they're all idiots for believing her bullshit. Well, this is a very compelling case and I want it to be true so bad, especially because there's some photos that are famous for this, but I just don't know if I can believe it because of something I'll tell you about here in a minute. But uh, anyway, so I was saying 30 visitors reported activity and the adolescent daughters, Margaret and Janet, who were, I don't know exact ages, probably between age 12 and 15, the two of them, they seem to be the primary targets. And they'd often go into trances and speak in guttural voices. And if you hear a 13-year-old girl, you know, little girl who has a soft little voice speaking guttural voices, I mean, that would scare the hell out of me too. <laughs> Let me ask you something real quick. You know, neither of us are religious at all. In fact, we're the opposite of religious. 
but if you did start having one of your kids speaking in guttural voices and saying they're Lucifer or whatever the hell, I mean, it would, what would uh, you do? Would you call a Would you call a priest? In all honesty, you probably do the same thing that she did in um, in The Exorcist, the first when Reagan started acting <laughs> cuckoo bananas and acting a fool. Yeah, acting a fool. That's a nice way for of saying uh, <laughs> masturbating with a crucifix. Yes. It was after that that they, she took her for physical and mental evaluations. I think they even did a spinal yeah. tap on her and found nothing wrong with her. So, yes, at that point, I would be like, well, you got to fight crazy with crazy. Let's call in a crazy person and pretend this shit's real. Yeah, I just don't know if I'd ever get to that point. I mean, I guess I would eventually, but yeah, it'd be like a last resort. But, you know, the masturbating with the cross thing in The Exorcist, that movie came out in 1973. That is so extreme for that time. I mean, it was 10 years before that, if not even that, that like, yeah. you know, the Beatles were being accused of, I don't know, just like such a... Shaking their hips. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. People were like, uh, I read that people, you know, passed out in the theaters and shit because it was just too much. I guess I'm just remarking on what a stark contrast in culture that was for the time. Now it's like not, you don't even think twice about it because it's, but uh, Another then, crucifix masturbating movie. Yep. <laughs> okay, so back to this case. The Enfield Poltergeist case is unique because of the extensive video footage taken in the home during the prolonged investigation. So there's a famous photo that probably a lot of people have seen and they don't even realize it was from this case. Where if you look up Enfield Poltergeist photo, mm-hmm. there's a photo of, I don't remember which girl, but either Margaret or Janet is in the air, appears to be levitating. Let me pull it up so I can... I can see it. She's jumping. She, that's like a straight up jump. Yeah, and she has a scared look on her face. There were supposedly people in the room during this, which is the, you know, argument against jumping because it's like there's adults in the room observing her levitating. This just looks like if you randomly open the door to my kid's room at any time, this is what you would see. Like, hey, oh, jumping off the bed. Well, maybe they are possessed and you just won't admit it. You just won't accept it since you're not religious. They've been possessed this whole time. There are multiple pictures of her in slightly different positions in the same bedroom with her sister in the other bed. Yep. But all of them look like she's jumping off the bed. (laughs) They do. Yeah. But she's always screaming and looking terrified. It would be different if she was like completely vertical or completely horizontal instead of looking like she's, she looks like she's leaping off the bed. So yeah, let's talk about the skepticism of this case. Although skeptics say the case was a hoax, the Warrens stood by their findings of paranormal activity. Skeptic Joe Nickel, who we mentioned earlier, uh, that name, one of these other cases, oh, it was uh, The Haunting in Connecticut, he commented on that one too. Same guy, Joe Nickel said, he examined the findings of the paranormal investigators and criticized them for being overly credulous. When a supposedly disembodied demonic voice was heard, he noted that, as always, Janet, that's one of the uh, teenage girls, as always, Janet's lips hardly seemed to be moving saying so ventriloquism is what Mm -hmm. they're implying there he argues that a photo allegedly depicting janet of levitating which is the picture we've been talking about uh, that actually shows her bouncing off the bed as if it were a trampoline and they reminded us that janet was a gymnastics champion (laughs) (laughs) so what do you do for fun i jump uh jump high up in the air well let's take some pictures of you levitating no i don't think it's that i think it's much more likely that if you're a gymnastics champion you are much more at risk of being demonically possessed. Probably so. Anyway, that's the Enfield Poltergeist number seven. Okay. Uh, well, 
Now we're getting in. Well, listen, before you give another guess, let me go through some more about the skepticism of the Warrens, Mm because every case that comes up. According to a 1997 interview with the Connecticut Post, Steve Novella and Perry DeAngelis investigated the Warrens for the New England Skeptical Society. I guess they they, uh, scrutinize cases of the paranormal. They found the couple to be pleasant people, but their claims of demons and ghosts to be at best, as tellers of meaningless ghost stories and, at worst, dangerous frauds. Perry Novella is quoted, he's one of those skeptic researchers, he's quoted as saying, The Warrens claim to have scientific evidence which does indeed prove the existence of ghosts, which sounds like a testable claim into which we can sink our investigative teeth. What we found was a very nice couple, some genuinely sincere people, but absolutely no compelling evidence. I mean, unfortunately, I agree with this guy. I do think, though, like maybe in the 80s or 90s, if you had a chance to go visit the Warrens and their museum, it would be incredible. Yeah. That would be like on my, on my list of spooky things to do. That would be absolutely near the top. You have to wonder why it's closed now. You'd think it, with the Conjuring movies that they would have enough publicity to get it going again. Well, I did, uh, I did look them up and there's a guy who the Warrens, they used to have a website. I looked it up warrens.net but now warrens.net redirects to tonyspera.com so this guy's picked it up and run with it i wonder if he has all their uh creepy shit well all their shit is somewhere yeah well let's talk about it some more so i'm gonna give you a hint the latest conjuring movie just came out this year do you remember what it was called oh uh like the title no the devil made me do it well, that's what the case is called, too. The devil made me do it case. <laughs> do what? The devil made me do it. I don't know this one. So like the Amityville Horror, there's a true crime case in here, too. Devil made me do it case is number six. It covers the trial of Arne Cheyenne Johnson. It is the first known court case in the U.S. in which the defense sought to prove innocence based upon the defendant's claim of demonic possession. Oh, God and denial of personal responsibility for the crime. Good luck with that. In the 70s, I think, maybe early 80s. Yeah, good luck with that. So the Warrens were initially called to investigate when 11-year-old David Glatzel began showing signs of demonic possession. As Lorraine described in an Mm. interview, one minute David, the 11-year-old boy, would be intently drawing at the kitchen table, and the next moment he was, quote, no longer an 11-year-old boy. Lorraine even saw a black mist form next to David, indicating the presence of a demon. Cool. Or maybe, maybe it's just, uh, what's the, the, the Charlie Brown character name with, that's always dirty? Yeah, maybe pig he pen? was a little pig pen. Maybe he had just walked by. This kid was a pig pen. Yeah. Because of this, a team of six priests were brought in, including some from the Vatican, and they performed an exorcism on David. So during the exorcism, the boyfriend of David's sister, Debbie, Okay, so a lot of names here. So right. David's the 11-year-old boy who's being exercised on. His sister, Debbie, and Debbie's boyfriend, mm-hmm. Arn, were there during the exorcism. <laughs> well, that's a, like, I'm going to hang out at my girlfriend's house. There is some fucking wild shit going on down there. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Like, are they having a party or are parents out of town? No, her brother is fucking possessed. <laughs> They're going to battle demons. And you got to remember, I mean, the exorcist had come out, but really that's, like, demon possession was like, I don't know, not in the forefront of American pop culture, uh, before the exorcism, I'm saying, or the exorcist. So, I don't know. Brandon, would you have any concern about being present for an exorcism? Yeah. Yeah, I would. So, at best, it's 
you know, a person who is severely in, in severe mental distress and probably like mentally ill, who it sounds like they could be dangerous. Like, it's not like people get possessed and then they like smile more. It's always like bitch slapping a priest, <laughs> calling him a cocksucker. Or remember she, um, in The Exorcist, after she used the crucifix, she grabbed, uh, grabbed somebody's head and shoved it into her crotch and got blood on their face. So at best, it's going to be dangerous. And then if there is anything truly demonic or spiritual, no, nah, I don't want to fuck around with that. I do believe that there are certain things that if you think about them too much, if you're too close to them, or if you open yourself up to those like ideas or energies, they'd probably at the very least give you some really fucking terrible dreams. You sound like my mom when I was 17 wanting to go see scary movies. That you're opening Nick, a door. if you open your yeah. mind to those no, things, <laughs> opening the door to that. the devil. I've played yeah. with like a Ouija board and stuff before. I'm not like, I'm not scared of that. But I think there's probably places and things that you could do that are, that are too close to the edge. I wouldn't go to an exorcism just for the physical safety component of it. Yeah, look. Although a priest getting bitch slapped by a demon, I, I could watch that. <laughs> That's what she did. She's, she slapped him around and then, uh, well, I guess I'll spoil uh, the exorcist. She ends up killing the priest. <laughs> yes, she does. <laughs> and she's very, very pleased with herself about it. And you know, the thing about the exorcist is she has a physical transformation, her face. Holy shit, this fucking scariest goddamn face. You can't, like, if that was real, if she really had that face, you can't walk into that room and say, okay, <laughs> yeah, she's this girl's fine. just crazy or unstable. She's faking it. She's faking it. Like, she has the face. Whereas in real, you know, quote-unquote demonic possessions, you don't see that change in face. No, but not Reagan from The Exorcist. Her no. face is full of color and life and all sorts of interesting boogered up parts and yellow eyes and fucking gr green bean teeth. Boogered up parts. Well, listen, if demons are real and if demons really possess people like they do in The Exorcist, then God and the devil, whoever, either one or both of them need to figure out, like make the face transform like Reagan in The Exorcist. I believe it. And then there's no doubt. I believe it every time. Yeah, and then I'll believe it every time. Holy fuck. Exactly. You and I figured it out. We should have created the universe, Brandon. Yeah. Okay, so the case, the devil made me do it. Remember, there's the 11-year-old boy, David, being exorcised by six mm -hmm. priests. His sister is there, and his sister's boyfriend, Arn, is there. Arn is the central point here. Right. So he's present at the exorcism, and he, as part of the exorcism, he, you know, bows up and puffs his chest out and says, Hey, demon, why don't you leave that body and come and fight someone your own size? So he challenges the demon to leave the... That's, the, that's yeah. what father damien karras does at the end of the exorcist and it exactly makes if then he ha gets fuck it well i think he flings himself flings himself out the window and down those stairs but yeah if you ask him if you like the pigs if you ask the a demon to come into you well i guess it's got like you have to be a good invitation like a big fat gross guy comes in and he's like hey demon come into me <laughs> the demon's probably like mm -mm, uh-uh well, the demon needs a fit young body in order to be right. at its most demon. Not somebody who's been like eating a lot of cheese and yeah. sitting. Yeah. So yeah, he says, uh, puffs out his chest. He says, Arn says, come into me. Yeah. And well, and at least the priest in the exorcist was a, was a priest so he could maybe handle it. Whereas I'm sure Arn saw the exorcist and that's where he got the idea. So he challenges the demon to leave the little boy's body and come into his. And according to the Warrens, that's exactly what happened. 
but nobody knew that right away. It was shortly after that where this happened. The couple's landlord, so the couple being the sister, Debbie, and the boyfriend, Arn. Arn is the one who had the demon go into him. Their landlord, Alan Bono, or Bono, brought a group, which includes some brothers and sisters and stuff, to lunch at a local bar and drank heavily. Uh-huh. If you go into a bar with your landlord and your young brother and sister, who are not, not at drinking age, and the landlord gets drunk, like, there's only so many ways this can go. So they returned, and the landlord was intoxicated and became agitated. Everyone left the room, except Bono, who seized one of the little sisters and refused to let go. So Arn headed back to the apartment and ordered the landlord to release her. Mm-hmm. And during that, Arn, the demon-possessed guy, he starts growling like an animal and drew a five-inch pocket knife and stabbed Bono repeatedly. And he died several hours later. According to Arn's lawyer, Bono had suffered four or five tremendous wounds, that's the quote, mostly to his chest and one stretched from his stomach to the base of his heart. Arn was discovered two miles or three kilometers away from, uh, from the site of the killing, and he was taken in by police. This was the first unlawful killing in the history of Brookfield, Connecticut. Arn was eventually convicted of manslaughter. He claimed that the demon made him do it. The devil made me do it. Uh, he was convicted of manslaughter and served time in prison. He only served five years, though. And today, this is the craziest part. So this is, I think this is the early 80s. I might be slightly off by a few years. But mm-hmm. now, today, 2021, Arn is out of prison. And the sister of the demon-possessed boy, Debbie, they're married and have two children. They're still together. She went ahead and married him? Yeah. God damn. After all this shit, they're married. Talk the about stand by your man. Crazy, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess if he hadn't stabbed a landlord, I would have been like, oh, maybe he was demon possessed. But I feel like anybody who stabs a landlord has at least some motivation. The devil made him do it, Brandon. What are you talking about? We no, uh, rent made him do it. <laughs> well, the devil was living rent free in his head. So I guess did it somehow work? That he was only convicted of manslaughter? He only got manslaughter, yeah. He got a 20-year sentence, but only served five years. It was not homicide, so yeah, I guess it... I, I don't know if that was uh, insanity or what I mean, the it plea says, was, but yeah, he didn't... I pulled it up here while we're talking about it. It says, the jury was not legally allowed to consider demonic possession as a viable explanation for the killing. So yeah, I don't know how he got it down to first-degree manslaughter, because it sounds like at least second-degree murder. He might have been underage, too, which could have played into the sentencing. I'm not positive on his age. Either way, Arn Johnson, dickhead. Yeah, he figured it out. Kill your landlord over rent, say the devil made you do it, serve five years, which sucks, but in the grand scheme, it's not that bad, and then go marry the, the girl that got you into this mess in the first place. And I don't know, it's just crazy how that all played out. So, you're missing 2, 5, 8, and 9, and 10. Fuck, okay. The first Conjuring movie, which is the one you might have seen. The Perrin family. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's Perron. I don't know. P-E-R-R-O-N. I think it's Perrin. I'm going to go with Perrin. They're the subject of the first Conjuring movie, and they're number mm-hmm. two, The Haunting at Their House. Carolyn and Roger Perrin, they purchased a 14-room, 18th-century farmhouse in 1971 in Rhode Island to raise their five daughters. There's a lot going on here. First of all, you're buying a 14-room house in 1971 in Rhode Island with five daughters? 
it's just a lot that can go wrong, even besides the haunting. They wrote off initial paranormal activity as quirks of an old home. However, as activity escalated, Carolyn Perrin researched the home and discovered that it had been in the same family for generations and was the site of a possible slang as well as multiple hangings in the attic. Which would piss me off if I found that out after moving into a house. Yeah, I feel like that's the sort of thing a realtor ought to, ought to disclose. Let me ask you, Graham. If you found a house and it was your dream house, you loved it, the price is great, the neighborhood is great, you were ready to buy it, and then the realtor told you there was a series of suicides or murders in the house, would that affect your buying decision? Yeah. You wouldn't do it? Because even if there's no like spirit or energy or anything like that remaining, well, now it's in my head. And you're right. Even if there's nothing paranormal about it, I'm still going to be thinking about it. Like every room I go in or like the room, like this is Once you tell it. me that, it might as well be true and might as well be haunted from uh, soup to nuts. And I think that's how a lot of these hauntings happen. You're told something like that up front. You don't believe it, but your mind kind of manifests it into reality. Right. Like the Lutzes in Amityville. Mm-hmm. Now they may have, mani- they, it sounds like they manifested a little bit more willingly, but yeah, you get an idea planted in your head. Let me tell you some more about the Perrin family. So I mentioned that the home was the site of a possible slang as well as multiple hangings in the attic. It had also reportedly been home to a woman named Bathsheba Sherman. <laughs> I still can't believe someone was named Bathsheba in the 1900s. I'm not getting a lot of Bathshebas around anymore. She, Bathsheba, was said to have been practicing a practicing Satanist and child slayer. <laughs> As the haunting grew stronger, the parents would smell rotting flesh and levitate in their beds. That's a red flag. If I wake up and I'm levitating, I'm fucking scared. Put me down. <laughs> uh, so Lorraine and Ed Warren were contacted and they conducted a seance that quickly turned dangerous when Carolyn became possessed by an evil spirit. This happens in the movie too. One of Carolyn's daughters remembers her mother speaking in tongues, levitating from her chair and being thrown across the room. So her husband, Roger, asked the Warrens to leave and never come back. But I think it worked, I guess, because reflecting on the case years later, Lorraine Warren called, I knew the house was haunted, all I had to do was walk in. We just had to find the source. God damn. Norma Sutcliffe and Gerald Helfrich, previous owners of the house on which the film was based, they uh, sued James Wan, Warner Brothers, and other producers <laughs> oh, in 2015 the of the on the ground that they're... Yeah sued them on the ground that their property was being vandalized constantly as a consequence of the film. The lawsuit also revealed that the previous owners bought the house in 1987 and lived in peace until 2012. Both owners were seeking unspecified damage, and when questioned, a Warner Brothers spokesperson declined to comment. So, what are people doing to the house? That's another reason not to buy a house that someone died in, because someday it, beca- it could be made a movie of, and then your house is a tourist attraction. So people are, like, taking off. I, I would assume people are, like, trying to, like, pull off a piece of the house. It doesn't say, but yeah. At some point, I know, like, people could purchase, uh, like, a splinter of wood from Ed Gein's house. So I assume it's something like that. Oh, man, that'd be cool to have. I haven't purchased <laughs> one, so. But Brandon, I will sell you a splinter of my house. I'll accept it. I won't pay for it. Okay. Well, I'll send you my PayPal later. You can send me some money. All right. So the last podcast on the left did a series of episodes on this haunting. I'm sure you've heard of it. Mm. It involves the story behind the haunting involves a nun. Is it the, where the movie about the nun came from? No. 
Oh, okay. Although I have not seen that movie, it's possible they borrowed from it. But I haven't no. seen that movie, but I know the, the image of the creepy nun. I don't know this one. The Borley Rectory Haunting. Oh, yeah, I know that. I know that name. See, I told you. I knew you know it. I didn't know they were... God, they're up, they're up in the guts of every big spooky story. Yeah, well, I, some of these, they're just called and come out like once, you know? Yeah. They're, they're like, like barely the, involved. The fucking Avengers of ghosts. Well, I think that's part of the strategy. Like, they know if they just show up even once in one of these cases, now their names are attached to that case forever. Right. Which is smart. Yeah, they could have been, you know, in a long line of goofballs showing up to investigate. So, Borley Rectory is number five? No, eight. Okay. So, the Borley Rectory was a house famous for being, quote, the most haunted house in England. After being described as such by psychic researcher Harry Price, listener of the show, the house was built in 1862 to house the rector of the parish of Borley and his family. Do you remember what a rector is? Isn't it like a priest, basically? Or a, some sort of holy man, right? Rectory? Uh, something to do with the butthole. Oh, right. Okay. My bad. No, I'll, let me look up what a rectory well, is. Well, rectory is the house of the rector. Let's see. A minister or priest lives there, yeah. So I was right all along. Yeah. The Borley Rectory, it was badly damaged by fire in 1939, demolished in 1944, so you can't even go there now. But the original Borley Rectory was reportedly built on the site of an old monastery where a nun was buried alive in the walls of the building after attempting to run off with a monk. Because we can't let two people be in love with each other, and if we find out that they are in love with each other, we're going to bury them alive. Couldn't you just say, like, all right, well, you can't be a nun no more? Because it was an affront to God. You know what, what'll make God happy? Burying this bitch alive in a wall. <laughs> I know. it's Attracting all uh, kinds of demons and shit. Yeah. So, although the infamous Borley Rectory burned down decades before the Warrens came, so the Warrens never actually even went to the Borley Rectory itself because it burned down, like, in the 40s. Mm-hmm. The neighboring Borley Church, which I think is, like, across the street, it still stands. And the church is said to be a site of paranormal activity. So Ed had been interested in the case since reading Harry Price's famous book, The Most Haunted House in England. Beginning in 1976, the Warrens made over two dozen trips to the site of the Borley Rectory and church. So that goes against what we were saying before. They went to Borley Rectory like like my parents go to Branson. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, we got a long weekend. You want to go to that uh, (laughs) fucking creepy ass house where the nun got killed? Yeah. I mean, they also, they're doing a lot of transatlantic traveling too. Yeah, well, and they have to finance all this shit themselves. Yeah, where are they getting the money for this? That's Well, they have their museum, they have their books. Yeah, that's true. But I don't think they were selling a ton of books until, I don't know when, late 70s maybe? Do you remember maybe, uh, it was probably about 10 years ago, there, maybe a little more than that, there was a reality show on A&E called Paranormal State? Not really, no. Okay, it was about a group of like college age paranormal investigators based out of Penn State University. And sometimes they brought Lorraine Warren. Oh, really? So, yeah, they were fucking eaten up with spooky ghost shit all the way, you know, up until her death. Yeah. And like I said, she, she was literally consulting the Conjuring movies that are about her. I mean, that's got to be, you know, you've made it when you are giving guidance on how to portray you in a big budget Hollywood movie. Yeah. franchise that'll be us someday brandon we'll be sitting in the writer's room saying that doesn't work for me nick needs to to be handsomer brandon needs to be slower <laughs> i'll be played by patrick wilson and you'll be played by vera formiga 
<laughs> no, you'll be played by Hasbulla. <laughs> I would love to be played by Hasbulla. The little man. I don't think he speaks English. <laughs> we'll, we'll teach him. I don't know if he can talk at all. We're going to teach him to talk in English so he can be you in the movie. Well, anyway, about the Borley Rectory. Lorraine described their first visit to Borley, uh, first visit out of over two dozen, as mm -hmm. a phenomenal experience. She explained that during the visit, a skeptical reporter began feeling ill and couldn't breathe. I can't wait to go back. Later that night, Lorraine and the reporter listened to a tape recording the event where a disembodied female voice could be heard saying, hit him, hit him, hit him, over and over. Which maybe, maybe the demon just wanted them to, to get it on. She wanted Lorraine to just turn around and belt L Ed in the mouth. It wasn't Ed, it was the reporter. Oh, she wanted to hit the reporter? Eh. Yeah. Well, Which, I, I mean, mean, they are the enemy of the people. I haven't met a lot of reporters I don't want to hit, am I right? Lorraine theorized that the spirit could have been that of the nun buried alive. It's quite a, quite a theory, Lorraine. The Borley Report, as the Society for Physical Research, or SPR, study has become known, stated that many of the phenomena were either faked or due to natural causes such as rats and the strange acoustics attributed to the odd shape of the house. In their conclusion, they wrote that Mrs. Mar Marianne Foister, um, who lived at the rectory from 1930-1935, was actively engaged in fraudulently, fraudulently creating haunted phenomena. And H Harry Price, who wrote the book that brought this rectory to fame, mm -hmm. has also been accused of faking and embellishing as well. You know, Can't do that shit. No, I, I, get, I mean, you can't. I don't see why you should be, like, maybe punished for it. I gotta say, though, for people who do pull off a good hoax, for people who come up with, like, the Amityville horror story, or if well, everything... one of my favorites is the Bigfoot sighting, the Patterson uh, Yeah, photo. like, I think a lot of, I don't know, I guess... There's nothing to that. No, I get what yeah, you're saying. Like, you've come up with either images or... But sometimes they create physical evidence, but at the very least, they create like really powerful, lasting, creatively inspiring images in people's heads. And a lot of, I mean, people love horror and people love spooky shit. And that's also the way like some people, I don't know, deal with things or work things out. So while, uh, while I guess you shouldn't like laud the, um, you know, lying or, or, perpetrating a falsehood to, to make money. I do think there is something like really amazing about people who come up with a truly scary story that lasts and carries and becomes internationally known, even if it is, you know, made up. I mean, there's something unhealthy about the mindset of those people at the same time, mm -hmm. but there's still something uh, remarkable about it. Probably so no more unhealthy than a lot of like other people in the entertainment industry. Very true. Like us. Exactly. Um, and speaking of telling stories, do you remember long ago, uh, we did a Patreon episode about real spooky stories that have happened to us? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we did. Um, our Patreon, though, is now known as Tennis Pod Plus, And we did an episode where Brandon and I told stories that happened to us that are spooky in nature. But also, our latest new bonus episode just dropped this past weekend. And this is where Brandon brought a list of would you rather questions that I answered on the spot. But not just me, because for the first time ever, we were joined by a very special secret guest who also played along with us. Brandon, don't spoil it, though. I'm leaving it a surprise. Mm -hmm. You can find out who joined us and how I answered Brandon's very thought-provoking, scientific, uh, reasonable would-you-rather questions. You can listen to it right now only on Tennis Pod Plus. 
Uh, there's dozens of other episodes too, and you can sign up easily in just a minute or two at tennispod.com plus. Or if you're an Apple Podcast listener, you can go to our Apple Podcast page and just hit subscribe at the top of the page. And in one tap, your feed will instantly refresh with bonus and ad-free content unlocked. Impossibly and incredibly. It's true. Well, the thing is, like, whether or not they were partially or fully full of shit, it worked. Good stories. Because of the Conjuring movies, which are some of the most successful horror movies of all time, their legacy set now. And, like, it was all worth it for them. <laughs> They're having whole podcasts devoted to their adventures. Yeah, that's true. Well, there's a few more adventures we need to get to. One involves a werewolf. Okay, this one I don't know of at all. I hadn't heard this one either. It's uh, number 10. Werewolf of Wisteria? No. It's the South End Werewolf, number 10. So, Bill Ramsey knew he was different at age 9, when after a cold chill came over him, he became so filled with rage, he ripped a fence post out of the ground and began to chew it. (laughs) (laughs) And to that, I just say, boys will be boys. Yeah, this actually sounds a lot like my (laughs) three-year-old. Pulling a fence post out of the ground and chewing it. Getting mad about something that, like, is just a part of life and then going apeshit and, yeah. So, Bill Ramsey, this kid, his childhood outburst seemed like an isolated incident until the mid-80s when he began growling, baring his teeth, and biting people. Again, like Brandon's three-year-old. He even bit cops. <laughs> but medical tests showed nothing wrong, either physically or mentally. It seemed there was no way to help him. Enter Ed and Lorraine Warren. I just looked this guy up. I'm going to go ahead and say werewolf. <laughs> I haven't even looked at him, actually. Let's see. Tell me this motherfucker's not a werewolf. Oh, my God. Holy shit. Brandon, that's a werewolf. <laughs> Batman looks like he's wolfing out. <laughs> I'm going to share a link to this photo in the show notes, which I do every week, by the way. Anytime we mention photos, uh, I usually share a link to them in the show notes, if you're wondering. Yeah, which I hope this doesn't sound like I'm talking down anybody, but some people uh, don't realize in the, sh- the show notes should be contained within like the app that you use to listen to the podcast, uh, go to where it has the description. Sometimes you'll have to click, you know, show more or full or whatever to open up the full description. And that's where you should see those links. Brandon, do you also want to walk us through how to turn on a light switch or? Some people don't know that, but now they do. Uh, well, anyway, about this werewolf of a man, I do encourage you to look at that photo, though, of Bill Ramsey. So nothing was wrong with him, according to medical tests. Ed and Lorraine Warren came to help. The Warrens were visiting London, where this is, when Lorraine saw Ramsey's case discussed on a television program. Program? She remembered thinking at the time, something inside of me told me I could help him. No, I think really something inside of you told you that you could become famous because of this case. ka <laughs> Lorraine confessed that she took solving the case to an extreme, buying expensive film footage of Ramsey well, Ed thought the case was outlandish. He said, quote, a werewolf in London, who would believe it? He stated in a later interview, <laughs> which, is, which is true. Who would believe it? Lorraine believed Ramsey was possessed by a demon, which caused him to behave like a werewolf. The Warrens were able to convince Ramsey to undergo an exorcism, which was filmed and showed Ramsey exhibiting wolf-like behavior. Hell yeah. I mean, I need to see this footage. If we're going to put you on film, you better pony up and do wolfy shit. <laughs> are you talking to me or is there someone in the room there with you no, you i'm talking to like? this guy who looks like he is mid transformation mm-hmm. and apparently that's his normal face <laughs> okay well we're just tearing this poor guy apart 
he might be a very nice man. And I've heard on good authority that he does have a hell of an ass. Anyway, after the exorcism, which happened in 1989, he never exhibited werewolf behavior again. So it worked. <laughs> cool. Well, stuck a flea collar on him and he said, uh, this ain't me no more. Brandon, we need to do an exorcism on you. For what? I don't know. I don't need... We'll think of, some, we'll think of a reason later. Let's just do it. I don't need exorcism. I need just regular old exercise. Yeah, well, that makes two of us, buddy. You got two left. <laughs> and I got no clue. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you'll get these, so I'll just tell you. Number nine is the White Lady of Union Cemetery. Does that ring any bells? Okay, I don't know that one at all. No. Okay. Number nine, the White Lady of Union Cemetery is probably one of the most famous hauntings in Connecticut lore, with multiple reports of drivers seeing a woman in white meandering through the cemetery and walking along the highway, which is a lot like your true story that you told me of a lady in a dress in the middle of the night. Yeah. Well, we won't spoil that. So the site of, this, of these sightings dates back to the 1700s. According to Ghost Hunters, it is one of the most haunted cemeteries in the entire United States. Ed and Lorraine Warren have written a book about the cemetery entitled The Graveyard. Which is interesting because, I mean, maybe they did this for other cases, but I didn't come across in my notes, but this is the first one we've read about where they have a book dedicated entirely to one case. Ed and Lorraine wrote one about Yeah, they wrote it called case. Graveyard. One man even claimed he saw the white lady standing in the road while a male apparition appeared next to him inside his car. The man uh, even appeared on television with the Warrens to discuss the encounter. I'm sure he didn't say this on TV, but he was probably just jerking off to the lady in white when the apparition appeared next to him and said, hey, cut that out. <laughs> That's my woman. God's watching you. Or, uh, uh, hey man. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> There's room for both of us in That's here. That's all he had to say was like, he just, he just appears, he just apparates into the passenger seat and just says, hey man. <laughs> and they start <laughs> whacking each other off. So Ed Warren himself became so obsessed with the haunting, he went on stakeouts in the cemetery for seven nights straight in order to see the white lady with his own eyes. Ugh, fuck that. I could hear what sounded like a woman weeping, he said in an interview. It was Lorraine, like, lonely in bed. <laughs> My fucking dork of a husband spending a week in the cemetery. Well, that alone, ugh, a week in the cemetery by yourself at night. Yeah. Nope. And I don't even believe in this shit, but I still wouldn't do it. He said the figure became the white lady. Other shadow ghosts appeared around her as he got closer, and that the whole ordeal was caught on video, so it was on video. The video was never released to the public, nah. but Ed noted it was a moment he'd waited his whole life to witness. It waited his whole life, got it on video, and decided, I'm not going to release it to the public. Nothing suspicious <laughs> about that, Ed. Well, Brandon, some things are just for you. Can't you have right. something just for you, not to share with the whole world? Like on their anniversary, Ed and Lorraine go out to a nice dinner and then go home and like pull out the uh the eight millimeter reel and watch the video of well, this is just for me and you ed yeah and then they get into some ghost role playing all right you got one left number five it's the smurl family haunting <laughs> easy for you to say i've not heard of the smurls smurl family haunting uh it was the subject of a 1986 book called the haunted and a 1991 made-for-TV movie of the same name on Fox. Oh, I bet that is hot dog shit. <laughs> hot dog space shit or hot? Hot space dog shit. Okay. Thought maybe you had hot dogs on the mind. A made-for-TV haunted movie coming out of 1991. I would watch it for sure. Yeah. On broadcast TV. 
Jack and Janet Smurl spent years dealing with an increasingly powerful supernatural force before the Warrens came to investigate in 1985. The Smurl case is unique because it spanned over a decade and the hauntings affected the entire family, though Jack seemed to be the primary target. The haunting in the family's Pennsylvania duplex began with disembodied voices and rappings on the wall, but soon turned into full-fledged attacks on the family. And to that I say, you're already living in a duplex, which means you got a family in the house right next to you, and you got to deal with the haunting at the same time? No, no, no. The fucking rapping on the wall and the bumps and shit is because they're living in a fucking duplex. (laughs) Well, you weren't there. You don't know. Uh, When I lived in an apartment and had somebody above me, yeah, it was fucking haunted with people stomping around every night. Or it seemed like every once in a while they would drop a bowling ball or a big pot in their kitchen. Like they would pull out the biggest pot in the kitchen and hold it at like at like eye level and then just drop it on the floor. And they'd crack up knowing that your fucking ass was that I'm down, down Like I just, that I just, uh, you know, was laying in bed completely horizontal, but was somehow able to jump three feet straight off my bed. <laughs> You were levitating like uh, the Enfield poltergeist. I basically levitated. Yeah, but I, I just looked this up and it says that, um, so yeah, that it escalated from loud noises and bad odors and then it threw their dog into a wall, yeah. shook their mattress, pushed one of their daughters down a flight of stairs and then physically and sexually assaulted family members on several occasions. Oh, I, did. I missed that part. There was another thing that happened in that book in a dark place. One of the women in the house, I can't remember which one, was uh, sexually assaulted by some, like, invisible entity when she was in the shower. And that sucks because, I mean... Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> Tell us why it sucked. <laughs> well, well, like, I'm not even trying to be funny here, but, like, you got enough stupid cavemen walking around the world right now that are willing and ready and able to rape you. The last thing you need is fucking ghosts doing it, too. Yeah. Fucking ghosts. Is there nothing else going on in the afterlife that you're still pulling this shit? <laughs> There's all kind, You can do anything you want in the afterlife and you're doing this? Yeah, just go fuck another ghost. Mind your own goddamn business. <laughs> or talk to people on the Ouija board. That's what I'd be doing. God, that'd be so much fun. To be a ghost on the other side of the Ouija board? Just lying to them. Well, anyway, the Warrens came. They made their way through the home. Lorraine came to the conclusion that there were four evil spirits, including a powerful demon. There was no doubt whatsoever in my mind that this family was experiencing was sheer terror being brought about through the ghost syndrome. Took four exorcisms to fully vanquish the evil spirits, and after that, the Smurls reported no further paranormal activity. I just saw at the end of the wiki article about uh, the Smurl haunting, it says that after the Smurl family moved, a woman named Deborah Owens moved into the former Smurl home in 1988 and told reporters she never encountered anything supernatural while living there. So what are you saying? That the four exorcisms were all bogus? That they didn't work and expel four demons from the home? Mm-hmm. My take on the whole thing is, look, I mean, obviously, this goes without saying, but I gave the highest level overview of all these cases pulled from a few articles online. These are not fully in-depth. I don't know the full history of any of this shit, but from what I gathered in my few hours of research here, I think it's very possible that the people living in these homes believed they were being haunted. I think it's possible that the Warrens went there and believed it was haunted, but I think it's also likely that Ed Warren in particular embellished. Yeah, 
even if he really did believe, he embellished too. Like, I'm not saying he was a strict con man. There are, are families who, you know, due to stress, uh, mental health issues, or just truly are confused and scared and believe that they are being haunted, they believe it fully. And Ed and Lorraine are totally prepared to believe it fully. And then they feed off of each other. And that if Ed and Lorraine say, now this house has been exercised, that the people have bought into the idea so much that, yeah, they're also willing to believe that now the house is uh, safe and spooky free. Well, everyone involved, the victims and the Warrens, want to believe that this is real. Right. Hey, Nick here with a quick post-production edit. I want to let you know that I was recently a guest on the Dialogue True Crime Podcast. That's D-I-E, a log podcast. I joined the host, Rebecca, to talk about top 10 modern cults you may not have heard of. I consider myself pretty well-versed in true crime, and I had not heard of seven or eight out of these 10 cults. We talked about cults that hide in caves for the end times. We talked about cults that believe there's a galactic battle with reptilians happening right now. We talked about cults in the recent news like Love Has Won and more. I think you'll really enjoy it if you're into true crime. Again, that's the Dialogue podcast. It's the September 29th episode of D-I-E-A-L-O-U-G-E podcast. Check it out. Thank you. Let's get back to the show now. Let me give you that top 10 again. Number 10, The South End Werewolf featuring Bill Ramsey. Number 9, The White Lady of Union Cemetery. Number 8, The Borley Rectory Haunting. That's the one with the dead nun. Number 7, The Enfield Poltergeist, which had the levitating girl. Number 6, The Devil Made Me Do It, subject of the latest Conjuring film. Number 5, The Smarl Family Haunting, the last one we talked about. Number four, The Haunting in Connecticut, where the family moved into the home that had um, a funeral home in the basement. Mm -hmm. Number three, The Amityville Horror, the most famous, in my opinion. Number two, The Perrin Family Haunting, which was the subject of the first Conjuring movie, had the woman named Bathsheba that was a Satanist and child slayer living at the house before them. And number one, Annabelle the Haunted Doll. I will say this episode has put a big smurl on my face. Mm, fuck you for that, you son of a bitch. I regret all of it now. All right, Brandon. Do, are you a firm believer in the paranormal now? Um, no, I, I think we, we did a fair amount of debunking and uh, yep. threw around a lot of skepticism this episode. I still stand by um, my idea that, like, I don't know, let's say... Five to ten percent of all spooky supernatural stories, there is, you know, maybe something else there. So, yeah, I think there's a little bit of room for some spooky shit still. Yeah. And as much as I may have debunked and shit on these stories and was skeptical, and I am skeptical, I've had no reason so far in my life to believe in hauntings and paranormal. But at the same time, I'm open minded to it. I want to see proof, I want to see evidence. At your age now, being, you know, an adult man with like a family and house and job, all that stuff, would you be willing to go into like a small bathroom and close the door and have it be completely pitch black and say Bloody Mary three times into the mirror? No. Was that how it worked that... I think it's more than three. 
I think it's you put your back to the mirror and you say Bloody Mary, it's either three or five times when you turn around, look at the mirror, you're supposed to see her. So you, would, you still wouldn't fuck around with that? You know, it's funny. I just said how I don't believe in any of this shit and I don't. I don't believe in Bloody Mary, obviously, but there's some like psychological part of my brain from childhood that was so scared of that as a child that I still yeah. won't do it now, you know? Yep. I mean, if someone like paid me to do it, I'd do it. Every once in a great while, I'm talking like maybe once a year, whether it's because I watch something scary or I'm just in that kind of mood, I'll be like in my house, you know, after everyone's gone to bed and it's dark, like I'll like walk down a hallway or, or go into a room and not turn on a light and be like, oh fuck, I need to turn this light on right goddamn now. <laughs> it doesn't happen very often, but it's still even at almost 40. Once in a while, I'm like, all right, I got to flip that light on. I never did Bloody Mary as a kid or an adult. I've never done it. And I don't Didn't, I was too scared to do it as a kid. I'll go do it when we get off, the, off this no. call, see what happens. <laughs> By yourself for no reason? <laughs> I'll bring my eight-year-old in there with me. <laughs> There's no way he's going to do it. He hasn't ever heard of Bloody Mary. He's got no reference. I bet, oh, man. I bet third graders don't even know what Bloody Mary is anymore. They're going to know tomorrow. I'm going to send his ass <laughs> to school. <laughs> uh, they're going to send for him. Kids. We're going to have a resurgence of Bloody Mary. Mark my words, it's going to spread like COVID. Oh, please. Well, then we're all fucked in that case. All right. It's been a long one today, so let's end it. But before we do, I'm going to get through some real quick podcast reviews. I read podcast reviews every week. If you want me to read yours, go leave a review. The first one comes from Bob Jane 1983 on Apple Podcast. Bob Jane says, really fun show with a couple of funny guys. Listing the awesome slash not so awesome things in life. Highly recommend the list about the presidents to get into it and then just kick back and get stuck into the rest. It's a good review. I, I agree with his guide on getting into it. Okay, so basically you're patting yourself on the back so hard that yeah. your hand's about to fall off. Because the president episodes are yours. Yep. They're good. All right, Brandon, costing us some listeners right now because they're turned off by your arrogance, but whatever. The next review comes from Jenny... Nijun, 32, sorry on your last name there. On Apple Podcast, they say, This podcast isn't your typical YouTube top 10 breakdown. Tennis Podcast features two hilarious hosts with an undeniably charming chemistry. Get ready for approximately hour-long hangouts where Nick and Brandon take you on an enlightening and entertaining journey to learn things you didn't think you'd need to know but are now glad you do. Couldn't ask for a more dynamic duo to spend an afternoon with. Hell yeah, thank you. While I appreciate the review, have a few problems with it, Jenny. First of all, you said that it features two hilarious hosts, when really it features one hilarious host and one hilarious and sidekick host. Also, you mentioned that it's a great dynamic duo to spend an afternoon with. To that I say, what's your problem with the morning? What's your t- problem with the evening? What's your problem with nighttime? But the review was nice, so I guess I'll get over yeah, thank it. thank you. Thank you. <laughs> What I do here, I like to to make you feel bad for leaving us a review. Well, quit doing that. Yeah. Anything else you want to say, Brandon? We'll be back, uh, well, next week we got Oh, shit, yeah, next week's 150. Next week we have our 150th episode, and you're doing, you got something cooking for that. Something cooking, that's right. So, all October we're doing Spooktober episodes, except next week. Episode 150, we're going to do something different uh, and not Spooktober related, but Brandon, you'll be, you'll have the list episode 151 so make sure it's spooky and next week yeah get your fucking butt ready for all kinds of 150 celebratory spankings i'm gonna give you 150 spankings brandon 
a different kind of spooky. <laughs> Spooktober, I guess, does continue after all. Yeah. Spanktober. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Thanks.